0: everyone, welcome back to the Everyday Theology Podcast, and I just want to say it is so good to be back here on the show with you. I'm joined by your other host, Ben Campbell. Ben, so good to see you here on the screen, and uh, glad to sit down and be able to record some more episodes for our listeners today. It's been such a long time, but Dustin is now a
1: married man. He's even got his ring on to prove it. And uh, we are uh, so excited to have you back and to finally be able to get back to the normal schedule of podcasting and all the rest and uh, all the goods. So we're going to have a fun time with
0: today's discussion of our For Lindsey and Friday. And today's subject actually is going to be very fascinating, uh, at least it is to me in my classes at welch divinity school ben i've been looking at some of the early church writings post nicaea and so today's subject we're actually going to talk about the incarnation it's so our hope today listeners that we will treat four lines as work uh, faithfully yet as i looked into this chapter i was like man <laughs> this could be a full hour long episode if we don't watch it and so uh <laughs> Uh, we want to treat Four Lines' as work faithfully, yet we know that, that there are uh, limitations with a, such a rich doctrine as the incarnation of Christ.
1: Yeah, we're, there's no way we're going to be able to cover all of this, but what thing we can cover is an overview, and we can most definitely cover um, sort of the 30,000-foot view of what it means for Jesus to be God incarnate or the Word made flesh
0: well i'm very excited to dive into this topic and we hope all of you will um stay faithful and keep listening and uh, keep watching the blog we hope to get back on the schedule with that as well Um, i think a very important way that we could start this discussion ben is uh, just by maybe you and i could talk briefly before we get into four lines specifically um, what do we mean when we say incarnation and then maybe you could uh, define that and kind of give us kind of an opener into uh four lines this chapter here so how would you define incarnation
1: yeah so basically what when we speak of the incarnation what we mean is that uh god becomes man that there is uh a not only a divine uh personality or divine nature to uh the son of god who was sent to Earth. Uh, as a man, but there's also a human nature. So in the incarnation, what you have is sort of this combination of divinity and humanity uh, kissing in the person of Jesus Christ. And so again, I, I referenced John 1:14. the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten son of God. So John's saying the son of God, the word has existed from eternity past he's co-equal with god he's co-eternal with god but as god uh planned from eternity past he saw fit to intervene into history through his incarnate son
0: well and it's such a rich doctrine i mean words like incarnation are not in the bible per se but they're just as pivotal to the christian vernacular ben as trinity or Christology, other thoughts that may come. And what we mean when we're referring to this incarnation, we're referring to this aspect that Jesus actually had two natures, divine and human. And if we reduce one or overemphasize the other, we actually go into heresy. So mm. with that, I think we could sort of jump into what Leroy lines thought about the incarnation.
1: Absolutely. So the the there is a couple of different, really, uh, reasons, or he calls them purposes, that the incarnation is important or, or you know, why there is such thing as the incarnation. The, the first thing that Four Lines tells us is that Christ is our kinsman, redeemer. So if you look at the story of the Bible, uh, I, I try to explain to our church as I pastor Um, that there are four words that mainly describe the story of the Bible, uh, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Consummation is the $20 theology word for new creation. And so, uh, you know, God created a world. It was perfect. Uh, He dwelt with his people in a, in a union that was, uh, that was Pleasing to him, of course, then man fell into sin because of our disobedience through our first parents. But then after Genesis 315, all the way to Revelation 22, you have this story of God redeeming his people. The whole story of the Bible is about redemption. And that's where uh, four lines really goes into this is how uh, you think of like uh, the story of Ruth. Where Ruth is a basically a lost sojourner in Moab and or excuse me not in Moab but in in Bethlehem, and she has no family. She has no one there. She's living with her mother in law, and until Boaz comes along, and it was his right to redeem her to buy her back into the family, uh, into that
0: family of uh, Elimelech. That's right. That's right. Um, who had, had went down uh, there because their land was in a famine. And so Ben is talking about this idea of kinsman redeemer. The Hebrew word there in Ruth is go well. Uh, there's some debate about that. There's a similar word uh, that's used. Uh, there's a there's a noun form and a verb form, and scholars debate about it. Uh, but the, the incarnation, when Forlon says, Ben, that Christ may be our kinsman redeemer, the reason why that's important is because um, we need someone who can relate to us as, as human, recognizing the the depravity and the extent of our humanness. But we also need one who, uh, because only God can truly forgive sin, only God can truly cover sin and atone, even in the old covenant. Been the the. Uh, bulls and the sacrifices in the temple were just a foreshadow of what eventually the messiah would suffer and so that christ might be our kinsman redeemer um, by him putting on our nature he's actually able to be our redeemer
1: yeah exactly and that also goes to uh the second purpose of incarnation which is that that christ might be revealed to us Mm -hmm. so again you have no revelation of Jesus, the person, without the incarnation. Four says, in the fall, man lost the functional likeness of God, and it is the design of redemption to restore the functional likeness of God in man. So what Hebrews tells us is that uh, God sent forth his son, uh, what God in the old times spoke uh, in the prophets, or through the prophets, and through judges, and through uh, the Torah, now he speaks to us in his Son Jesus, and ultimately, what four lines grabs here is that the ultimate revelation of God does not come through His Word, but it comes through the Person of Jesus Christ, who happens to be the Logos, the Word of God. Um, it's not the written word, but it's the the seen word. It's it's the the human word, if you will. And his life and his death, his active and passive obedience, four lines would describe it as, uh, have not only um, been witnessed about by those who wrote Scripture, but more importantly, they have satisfied God's holy standard and God's wrath for humanity.
0: Yeah, and this aspect of Jesus revealing God to us, uh, we, we wouldn't know what God was like unless he did so. And the fact that he and his grace has disclosed not only himself through the pages of Holy Scripture, Ben, but also through a form that is tangible, that is visible. Um, the writer of Hebrews we've talked about has, he says that, He is the image or the exact imprint. I actually said one time in a sermon, if you want to know what God is like, look no further than Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Four Lines is really getting at when he says one purpose of the incarnation is that that God may be revealed to us. Because if we don't have God revealed to us, we're going to conjure up this divine being uh, that may be a God in our head but that may be based more on our own presuppositions than on who he has revealed himself to be.
1: Right, that's exactly right.
0: And again, those those
1: presuppositions or those conjured up thoughts can lead to lead us down dangerous roads that we ought not go, like all these heresies that he mentions
0: in the book. Yeah, there are several erroneous views concerning the nature of Christ. Before he gets into that section, there's a little section on how Christ is both human and divine. Uh, There is the humanity and the deity of Christ. It's not so much as if he is adding human nature and that's a minus bin away from his divine nature. It's more so like the human is an add-on to his divine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And let's look at some of these heretical views now. Listener, I hope you hear us say these views that we're about to talk about. uh, There are a couple of them. These are views that are outside of what the Orthodox Church has taught since the fourth century. So the first one, Ben, is called Ebionism, or uh, what Four Lines calls the Ebionite controversy. The Ebionites were this Jewish group that gave Jesus a lot of importance, but they denied his deity. Why Mm -hmm. is that a problem, Ben? Well, because if
1: he's not a he's not a divine being, he's not God. I mean, that's just it. <laughs> I mean, there's really no other explanation. If Jesus is not divine, he's not God. He's just another man. And there's no redemption if uh, because the law's not satisfied. The law's only satisfied by a perfect individual.
0: Right. So Ebionites uh, they were similar to other Jewish. Um, sects, S-E-C-T-S, that arose, um, like the Essenes and even some of the groups that Mm -hmm. were affiliated with John the Baptist. So these Ebionites uh, ultimately get rejected as heretics. Ben, uh, Liz, tell us what is another heretical view on the nature of Christ here? So one of of the
1: most prominent ones in the first century actually was uh, the view of Gnosticism. And basically... There was a lot of, of false teaching going around in the first century. Essentially what Gnosticism is is they denied the – or they they claimed that matter is uh, innately evil, that, that all created matter is wicked. And they say uh, they, will, they will either deny the reality of Jesus' as human nature or they will deny – that there was any incarnation at all. And he quotes uh, Alexander Renwick here, who says this heavenly Christ acted in the man Jesus, but was never incarnate.
0: Do you think, Ben, um, Gnosticism, there is actually something that scholars talk about now that is called Neo-Gnosticism. Do you, have you seen any examples of this new Gnosticism in your ministry or um, where, where there is kind of this renewed emphasis on the old Gnostic ways or I don't know that I've just heard some scholars talk about neo-gnosticism. And I was curious if if you've seen any tangible expressions of that.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the God of moralistic therapeutic deism comes to, comes to mind. Kind of like the little Jesus in your pocket type thing where, you know, he's not really, uh, you know, he's kind of just there when you need him. He's real impersonal. Um, and, you know, or, you know, quite frankly, there's quite a bit of, of controversy with some really famous preachers who will try to, uh, sort of minimize the person and work of Christ. I, I would even go as far as to say, there's probably some views on the atonement that might, could lean
0: a little Gnostic in one way or another. Yeah. Yeah yeah i think that's great well another heresy that arose uh, that four lines outlines was called arianism you guys are probably familiar with arianism and athanasius and how the teaching of athanasius became you know accepted or affirmed by the orthodox church and we don't just mean the greek orthodox we mean universal little c catholicity you know, the universal church. But Arius actually denied the integrity of Christ's divine nature. And Arius actually ends up getting condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Mm -hmm. Um, Arianism, uh, really, when you you deny the the divine nature of Christ, I think that we see some modern-day heresies, Ben, that are related to Arianism, which are, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, And and this is not Ben and I trying to single that group out. But just to give an example that these views that the church dealt with early in the fourth century, honestly, there's no new heresies that somebody has said. And Mm -hmm. really, it's just we as humans, Ben, we we're real good at uh, just kind of reinventing sin and how we it's the same thing in a different carton. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Mormonism is another another one. That way we're not just singling out Jehovah's Witness. Right, which that one really brings up a whole other can of worms because some people, well, why don't you think Mormons are Christians because they deny the divinity of Jesus? (laughs) You can't deny the divinity of Jesus and have him as the way, the truth, and the life. It's inconsistent. It's internally uh, contradictory, and that's a problem because truth is not contradictory. There is a coherence to... To that, which leads to epistemology. So there, there's yeah. a lot in this. So so far, we've talked about three heresies that Four Lines outlines, which is Ebionism, Gnosticism, and Arianism. Ben, uh, let's talk about the last three kind of heresies that uh, Four Lines outlines. There.
1: Okay. Well, the first one is the Apollinarians. Um, they sort of like the Arians, uh, denied this integrity of the divine nature of Christ we have apollinarianism and they did not deny the divine nature they denied the human nature um so what the apollinarians say is that jesus had a body and a soul but did not have a human spirit and so his intelligence was the de- de- supplied through his eternal um his eternal lifetime or his eternal divinity that the were uh, that comes into play. That was, of course, condemned at the Council of Constantinople in 381. The, uh, another one is the Nestorians, who used an improper teaching regarding the union of the human and divine natures of Christ. That was condemned at the Synod of Ephesus in 431. It basically says that the union of the two natures of Christ is more analogous uh, to the indwelling Holy Spirit in a believer um and the result of that basically is the existence of two persons essentially so in that basically what the nestorians say is if you have a human and divine nature then there's two jesuses
0: Right, which is problematic. One of the things I've had to read this week, Ben, for my academic reading is um, I had to read a sermon from St. Cyril of Alexandria. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: he actually has a sermon that he preaches on the Gospel of Luke and Luke chapter 2. St. Cyril said this about Luke chapter 2. I have this here, and this isn't four lines, but it fits right within. So Cyril actually wrote against Nestorianism. That's why I'm I'm this. Cyril said this about Luke chapter two. The natures, however, which combined in this real union were different, but from the two together is one God, the Son, without the diversity of natures being destroyed by the union. And then he says, um, for a union of two natures was made, and therefore we confess one Christ, one Son, yeah. and one Lord.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I will say, too, while, while you're talking about uh, patristic sermons and readings and all that, uh, we'll link this book in the show notes, but um, you can actually buy Athanasius' um, work on the incarnation uh, on Amazon for $16. And uh, just for those of you, if you've read anything at all, uh, this has an introduction by C.S. Lewis. And this is the introduction where C.S. Lewis coins the term uh, chronological snobbery. And where basically he says that it, well, Lewis makes a, a very audacious claim and says that Really, if we want to read well and read widely and read to our advantage, we ought to read three old books for every new book we read. And the reason for that is because we're shorting ourselves on 2,000 years of Christian history in doing so.
0: Yeah. So Nestorianism heresy. There was one other heresy that rose up, Ben, called Eutychianism. That's a hard word to say, especially when you <laughs> grew up in the South. Um, <clears throat> Eutyches actually taught that the divine and human natures came together to form a third nature. Really strange. No, no scripture to back this up, and this ends up getting con- condemned at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Now that we've discussed been some of the heretical views about Christ, I think it's only appropriate for us to talk about what we actually believe. Um, as believers, as Christians or what four lines outlines as quote the Orthodox view. What is the Orthodox view of the Incarnation?
1: Well, that there's basically that Christ is two natures but that he is one person. So in essence, this means that Jesus was, not in human form, until he was born from the Virgin Mary. He existed in eternity past as God, but he did he was not in human form until, you know, whenever he was born. Um, but it's what is called a a theanthropic person or personality. So what that means is that he's one there's only one person, but He has two natures
0: there. Well, and I think one of the things that people often overlooked, when we talk about the fact that no member of the Godhead has ever not existed, um, that the three persons of the Godhead have existed um, eternally together, uh, we're not saying that Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, always existed. We're saying the second person of the Son in the form of the eternal Logos, for example, was present at creation. Um, Just like uh, Colossians chapter 1 says that he was there. How could this one born from Mary and Joseph have been present at the creation of the world? He was present in the form without committing the heresy of modalism. He was present as the eternal logos Mm -hmm. yeah and that's why paul can say in philippians
1: 2 uh he became a man took on human form um as he submitted himself to god's eternal decree of intervening into history as a human person to redeem his people
0: Well, and Four Lines moves into that section on the Orthodox view, and he defends what he calls the theanthropic view. Anthropos, man, theos, God, theanthropic view of God. I mean, he has this quote that he says, um, uh, two things from page 174 in the Quest for Truth, and I'll share these to our listeners, Ben. It says, Without alteration to the divine personality, the personality of Christ took on the attributes of human personality and became a theanthropic personality. And then he skips down and he says, The human nature of Christ is restricted to the limits of the human body. The theanthropic personality is omnipresent. The personal presence of Christ is always theanthropic at all times and all places. Um, and I actually have a note here in my qu- my copy of the quest that says, think of it as an add-on to mm-hmm. my nature. So the reason I yeah. wanted to talk about this theanthropic thing is because it's kind of a new language um, that doesn't really, I don't know. I had not heard that term theanthropic before I've read four lines, but maybe somebody else has said it. Probably. I'm sure it's
1: not original with him, but... I'll never forget being in systematic theology with Dr. Kevin Hester. And he sort of explained it like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, where you make two pieces of bread and you put on one side peanut butter and on the other side jelly. But if you just fold them up, you've got one peanut butter sandwich and one jelly sandwich. But if you put the two pieces of bread together, you have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And that's sort of how, sort of a feeble humanistic way of illustrating the two natures of Christ
0: right and from this point in the chapter dear listener four lines moves into the broader implications of the doctrine of the incarnation he he talks about the peccability or the impeccability of christ he talks about the significance of omnipresence and the human jesus for example there are times that his human nature is limited and there are times that it doesn't seem to be so limited um And there are implications uh, that result from the resurrection. You could all go read that. It's great content. Uh, But I want to kind of transition, Ben, to talk about why the talk of Christ is both fully divine and fully human. Why does that matter? I mean, why does that matter to the ordinary believer who's working their job and providing for their family? Why does it matter, this doctrine of this weird word called incarnation? How does that impact normal people? Well, I think
1: there's a. I think there's two main applications to this. One is through justification and and the other is through the atonement. Uh, So if Jesus was not a, a human being or the other way around, if Jesus was maybe a good teacher, good moral man, good rabbi, whatever, but not really, not God. Both of those things falter our standing uh, with God almighty. they they hinder it uh, because so so this is re- we're recording this uh, right after october thirty first, which is not only Halloween, but it's Reformation day. And um what we're figuring out and what we we ought to realize when we talk about justification is that without, the person and work of Jesus Christ as 100% god and 100% man together two natures coming together in the incarnate son we're not justified before god there's no way uh because we need an alien righteousness we're sinners we're guilty we're we're not innocent we are condemned um but paul says in romans 8 the only way we are not condemned is in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that, of course, is related to the atonement in that if uh, Christ is either human or divine, um, that's problematic because that means that his atoning sacrifice doesn't measure up.
0: So there's this beautiful doctrine that we have in the incarnation. You know, it, it reminds us that He is worthy of worship. Uh, it reminds us that he's relatable to us. I appreciate that the New Testament talks about Jesus growing tired, weary and hungry and that he experienced the same temptations we face. If we reduce his humanity, Ben, we actually deny that he can sympathize with us when we're tempted or we say, well, he wasn't really tempted like we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in order for him to be our our kinsman redeemer, like we talked about earlier, he has to be able to relate to our temptation in a way that's meaningful to us. And so scripture's portrayal of Jesus as both fully divine and fully human gives us the balance we need uh, for our total personalities. Yeah, I agree 100%, 100%. Christians for centuries have affirmed the creed that resulted from the polemical work done by the church in Nicaea in the year 325. Ben, I think it's fitting for us to conclude this episode by reading the Nicene Creed, and I'll read it Uh, to our listeners, and hopefully we can link that for you guys uh, to be able to access it. You could Google it, but um, there's some helpful resources like the Christian Classics uh, Eretheal Library, and that's where I've pulled this from, and I've linked it there. Uh, But this is the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures. And he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and life of the world to come. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Everyday
1: Theology. We hope that this has encouraged you. We hope it's been exhorting for you. If you like it, great. Give us a rating on your favorite podcasting app, but also share this uh, for your friends to listen to as well. And Until next time, we pray that these truths reach you for your good and for God's glory.